we're part of nature and we came from caves. You know, the ice age receded and we came from caves and we took stones and built our own caves. And that was the beginning of architecture. And you know, we kind of have to realize the basic approach to drawing these materials from the landscape and sheltering ourselves with them in a way that's intelligent and human. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Blissfully Aware, a podcast about rooting into purpose and exploring ways of creating a positive impact through strategy and design thinking. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman, and you just heard Jake Thiel, founder and CEO of Edifice Architectural. Jake collects time-worn arrowheads from the shores of the Potomac River. He appreciates their simplicity. He marvels in their history. And he applies this wonder to the building process. What would it look like for an architecture startup to approach its craft with a multi-generational timeline? What would it mean for a startup to think about adaptive, sustainable growth, not only for itself, but also based on the needs of our communities and our planet? We shed light on these themes today. Let's get to it. Jake Teal, welcome on board. Well, thank you, Iwana. It's good to be here. Tell our listeners what you do and where your practice is, please. Okay. Uh, I'm an, a registered architect in um, Maryland and the District of Columbia. I opened up my practice seven years ago when I returned from a partnership in Italy, uh, in Rome, Italy. I was there for almost four years. And that's really where I got my start and my initial inspiration. It was in the context of 2,500 years of architectural history and art history and historical creative lineage. Do you want to set the scene a little bit and talk about what that path was like? Sure. A lot of times when we think of you know, ancient Rome and the classical uh, canon of architectural design, we like to think about how buildings were designed in a different time in a different era that kind of feeds our romanticism but the one thing that really interested me about looking at ancient buildings is to see what has become of them over the course of time after wars and invasions occupations new religions new cultures superimposing themselves on top of others you know you see really what nature values in architecture and what nature limits and edits and removes over time what did you see? I saw buildings that were brought from their glorious superficial aspects, ancient Roman imperial bath complexes that were revetted in polychromatic precious marbles, and they're now reduced to great arches and integral stone and brickwork, and they've been revisited many times. Different structures have been built into them. You see pudlocks or recesses where new beams were fitted in to make for huts and barns and buildings that had passed in other eras. You see, Rome was an empire at its peak. It had about a population of close to a million people. And within the next century, the population dwindled to 50,000 when the empire moved from Rome to Constantinople. So Rome survived on the wool guild through medieval times. And so shepherds were grazing their flock in the middle of downtown Rome for hundreds of years. <laughs> And so you never think about a capital city and how it implodes and deconstructs into, into a whole nother way of life. It's interesting to see the bigger picture of that ancient historical context. 
And that's something that I try to inform my work because you know, these ancient bathhouses that are now in ruins, they were beautiful when they were designed and intended, but they're still beautiful in a different way because the perpetual dialogue that man has with nature is incredible to see what we build and what nature values over time. I mean, you just walk through the forum and see these you know, ancient columns poking up out of the middle of nowhere or in the corner of a church or uh, a more contemporary building. And this is recycling. This is uh, adaptive reuse. You, know, you already have one wall built, so that's 25% off of the four walls you have to build. <laughs> so one of your four walls might be an ancient structure. Exactly. And you might be building you know, midway up that structure because all of the dust and infill over time has raised the ground level midway to what that ancient structure had been intended. You know, That process is, is pretty amazing. It's fascinating. How does that inform your work practicing architecture in 2020? I definitely see that, you know, in the case of global warming and having to recycle more and care more for the environment, this dialogue that we have with Mother Nature is going to have to be a more intimate one. And we're going to have to recycle more and consider adaptive reuse. We can't just have this mentality of tear it down and rebuild like I see all over the United States. You know, my grandmother's neighborhood in, in Bethesda, Maryland is beautiful old brick houses, solid brick construction is being torn down for McMansions and literally doesn't make any sense to me. But financially, that's what the market seems to respond to. One thing I see about old buildings is the quality of the lived in experience, the human experience. I mean, I've walked down ancient Roman steps that have been, you know, carved and scalloped by the footsteps of millions over the years. And it amazes me to think, you know, here I walk into the Pantheon, a building that was built in 80 AD, and it's still under roof, it's still preserved. And ancient Roman pagans had walked there, and Attila the Hun, when he conquered the city, you know, opened those bronze doors, and all of the former empire was uh, laid at his feet. To think of the certain characters that occupied that space is a certain amount of historical uh, magic to it. What really turns me on is this is not some fairy tale. This is not like Game of Thrones, you know. This stuff really happened. These people really existed. And, you know, the history that we've lived is just as miraculous and fantastic as, as any fictional storybook. Probably even more so. Even more so that it was real and that humans just like us live those experiences firsthand. I want to go back to what you said about sustainability, because that's so part of your ethos. Yeah, absolutely. What's your philosophy? How should humans build? You know, there are a few initial things that you can do to design a more efficient and more functional home. Designing with basic materials is one good thing. Each material has certain structural qualities and qualities of weather resistance. First of all, using basic materials, masonry, wood, and metal, and use them in a pure way. I mean, you don't have to stamp concrete to try to emulate stone or brick or, you know, use materials that are shipped from far away. You know, you can use locally sourced materials. Also, the orientation and proportioning of your building with respect to your climatic region. The United States has three climatic regions. It has the subarctic in the extreme north, Maine, Minnesota, or North Dakota. Then it has a temperate forest in the central part of the country, and then it has tropical in southern Florida, Miami, where you see the coconut palms. 
these are very different climatic regions and they have different qualities. Some can be hot and humid. Some are dry and cold. And then there's your desert in the Southwest, I can't forget. These different climatic regions you need to design differently for. And there are ways of proportioning your building to take advantage of the different qualities of those environments. And then orientation so that you can take in sunlight, natural thermal gain that's going to offset any kind of climate control to maintain human comfort levels uh, without having to pay, buy fossil fuels in order to keep yourself comfortable in the different times of year. So there are many decisions to be made that affect your footprint and what you're putting out in the environment. Right. And in the end, this simply means that if you live in the temperate forests of Maryland, like I do, you want a house that's roughly two to three to one in proportion, length to width, and that faces approximately five degrees east of due south, the long side, and that's a story or two. So if you keep that in mind, you know, of course, there are variations from that understanding, but this proportioning it and putting, you know, windows on the south side to gain thermal exposure uh, when you need it in the wintertime to warm your house and extend your roof line to where it blocks the high incident summer sun, you will be saving yourself a lot of money and you'll be saving the environment a lot of frustration in terms of mining and extracting fossil fuels, paying for them and you know frustrating our, the balance of our natural world. Ooh, say more. Okay. Let's talk more about that. Yeah, climate change is really an emergency now. I'm noticing just that in Maryland, which has more tidal coastline of any state in the lower 48, the sea level has seemed to rise 18 inches just this year. It wasn't really noticeable, but we no longer have low tides on the Potomac. Our mean tide is now the low tide, and our high tides are extraordinary. We're getting a lot of bank erosion and losing a lot of front yard and... Also in the port of Annapolis, I've seen it flooded out several times this year. It's alarming. I'm assuming that the polar ice cap is melting and all the water is raising the sea level. And some of us who live on the waterfront aren't prepared for that. So how do you, as an architect, how can you use all your knowledge and your know-how to fight this back and introduce some balance? This complication is intimidating because a lot of times people who are looking to build their own house, don't consider the complications involved. I mean, I'm the professional that's hired in order to help them and walk them through the process and advise them. A lot of times I think they're very idealistic in thinking this is going to be a breeze through process. This is what I want. Let's do it. But it's a process and it's about educating clients to potential benefits that they've never heard about and making decisions that upset their objectives, their plan, what they had in mind. Or how they view themselves. And how they view themselves. This is also something I'm realizing, how people identify themselves. I mean, I recently met a couple that called me in for some consultation on a property they were considering buying on the waterfront in Southern Maryland. They called me because they had seen my website and saw that I would be probably one of the only people in the area who could advise on such a project. And they identified as traditional people. They were looking at this beautiful stone, single-story modern house, very prairie style, very Frank Lloyd Wright. Beautiful house. I was, you know, drooling over it <laughs> because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on the modern progressive side of things. But during this project, I could see there's something in their gut, well, at least to the husband, that attracted him to this project. He saw a lot of potential there. I mean, you can't get stonework anymore, let alone good brick or masonry work in general. 
so it was a very attractive house. It appealed to his gut reaction on some level. And she entertained the idea of adding to it in a more traditional way. But of course, they didn't want it to look like a hodgepodge of different styles taken from different eras and, and different ways of life. So this is kind of a crossover point for them. And I could see that. And that would be my responsibility not to blow them away with what I can do, but to get them at least to the next level and opening up and seeing what the potential for reinventing themselves and re-identifying with a part of themselves that they probably hadn't experimented with. It's almost like a therapy session with them in Absolutely. a way. This beautiful house threw them a monkey wrench. And then they're like, we're attracted to this. Why? <laughs> you know, what is it about me that responds to this? And now what do I do with myself? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so like this is the next step. And this is also the power of art. When a house is beautiful and it's designed really well, you know, even though it's not what you thought your style was, it speaks on this primal human level. And, you know, that's great art. You know, you don't have to think about it. It's about feeling. It's about what you feel. Communicating feelings through a physical medium. And that's really the magic of art when it comes down to it. And so they were kind of spellbound by this house and entertaining the possibility to reinvestigate their sense of awareness. That's amazing. And it's my responsibility to get them there. And I feel very responsible because I want them to be able to be happy and to grow into a new progressive way of life. And that's always the challenge. A lot of times clients come to me with an idea in their head of what this is going to look like and what it's going to be. And right then and there, I'm, I'm having to like swim in constraints, you know, swim in boots or whatever, you know, <laughs> that's my responsibility. I gauge them and figure out where is that next step, you know, how far can I get them without freaking them out, you know, <laughs> without them having a total identity crisis. <laughs> how do you suss that out? That's something I'm working on now as I mature as a professional. It has to do with getting to know people and being able to read people. And it's something I've always been challenged with. I've never been a socialite. You know, I've always kind of been an oddball. <laughs> and I think that helps me, you know, be able to look at things differently and helps inspire me as an artist. But the difficult part is being able to lead people and to connect with people, to follow my eccentric vision. But I also want to be a little more honest with my clients in the beginning, preparing them for what it is I do and how to get the best out of me. And you're doing that. You're building a house. Yes. Let's talk about that beautiful cutting edge house. Thank you very much, Johanna. I broke ground in 2012. I bought the property in 2010, but it took me, you know, a year or two to get everything organized. I've learned a lot about the process, you know, acting as my own general contractor, designer and architect, which has been quite an experience. You know, some things, you know, I want this as a designer, I want to, but as the person who's got to pay for it, you know, I sympathize now with my clients and I sympathize with my builder because, you know, <laughs> they're the ones who are going to have to put it together. And I've been in that role several times. And so talking about putting your money uh, where your mouth is and uh, practicing what you preach, that's really helped me grow as a designer and you know, as a professional in general. And it's been a real adventure of trial and error. In the end, I think what we're building here on the Potomac in Southern Maryland is a very unique structure. And I try to be as sustainable as possible. You know, not always can I afford to install all the geothermal wells, all the solar panel array, wind turbine, all the stuff that's really going to make a house 
get off the grid and stay off the grid, but I try to design a building that can accept those features at a future time. The biggest thing that a lot of people don't understand about uh, sustainable technology when it comes to architecture, it's not about the mechanics. It's not about the machines. One time I had a guy come to me and he wanted to build a new sustainable dwelling in Virginia. And, you know, he was like, you know, this is the box. This is my box. And what kind of equipment do I need to stuff it with in order to make it sustainable? That's the first mistake is not realizing that the house, you know, as Le Corbusier said in the 1920s, a machine for living in. The house is the machine, not the machines inside the house. You know, we like to have a mechanical closet and think that there it is. That's the heart and the lungs of the building, but that's not the truth. I mean, if you design the building properly, you know, the windows take in your solar gain and a central thermal masonry wall, dark in color to absorb heat, that's going to be your battery. It's going to be energized with solar heat so that in the evening when room temperature drops, that heat's going to radiate out and it's going to help balance the comfort level in your dwelling. And so passive systems are your most helpful systems. And that's why orienting your house, proportioning it properly, and putting those thermal glass on the south side of your house, these easy things you can do to make the most impact when it comes to sustainability. And then, of course, later on when you have the money, solar panels, wind turbines, a geothermal well, I'm in it for the long haul. And, and I really tried to build something, you know, from the American landscape. Even though I learned a lot of these techniques while working in Italy, I was very inspired by some of the temples I saw in Mexico and the construction that has really been drawn from this landscape. Instead of like, you know, superimposing the classical vocabulary of decoration as we had in the colonial era. You know, it's really interesting to actually go back and see how, you know, where the ancient architects in Rome were getting this stuff from. They were living a much more primitive life tied to the landscape and building an architecture of that landscape. And it's nothing you can just simply import to North America. This landscape is different. It has its own language. It has its own expression. And if we can tie into that and use that to our advantage instead of fight it or block it, work with the, the spirit of the landscape, work with nature to let it come to its fruition. I love that. We're part of nature and we came from caves. You know, the ice age receded and we came from caves and we took stones and built our own caves. And that was the beginning of architecture. And we kind of have to realize the basic approach to drawing these materials from the landscape and sheltering ourselves with them in a way that's intelligent and human. And sustainable. Exactly. And that's the nature of sustainability. Drawing a material from the landscape, that gesture of building it up and bringing it over you to shelter you. It's a, kind of a real simple gesture on the emotional scale. But of course, this involves a lot of labor and planning on the, the technical aspect. But I like to keep the design simple like that. In my project, I just use a simple shed roof that raises up and I try to bring the walls to the ground. I like to think of it not as, you know, windows or walls, but to think of those as formations growing out of the ground, you know. If you don't think of them as walls anymore, it's not going to look like a house. It's going to look like a beautiful piece of nature that you can use as a shelter. That's like a poem. It's poetic. Architecture is a very poetic craft. And there's so many beautiful things out there in nature, beautiful mountains, beautiful rock formations, you know, natural bridges and arches. And if we could inhabit those, we could capture some of that beauty for ourselves. And so if we use those principles, 
And a wall is not a simple wall, and a window is not a simple window. You're talking about an, an aperture or a, a rupture, you know, something more dynamic, something more natural, something more, you know, and that's how I saw when, like, there's this great book my grandfather gave me when I was a kid. He was an architect. He gave me this book called Architecture Without Architects. And it's about all these primitive buildings all throughout the world and how people were living in villages in North Africa that are built on top of each other and towns in Southern Italy, they're living in caves that are dug out of ravines. And there's such a deeper sense of community in these places because you're literally digging out your home until you dig into somebody else's home. You say, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And you block it back up again and you're walking over their terrace in order to get to your front door. And so people are living more communal lives, more communal existences. These places were initiated, you know, hundreds if not over a thousand years ago. A lot of people are still living like that. These places are still inhabited. And there's a different sense of community, a different sense of self-awareness to each other and the earth as earthlings, you know? <laughs> totally. I love that so much. Yeah. We're going to have to start dwelling again. Being a part of the village, the community, it's something I think we've lost in the modern era. Say more. Boy, you know, if my experience is in Europe, you know, I see these ancient villages dying. Only grandpa and grandma are left talking about the glory days when, you know, they used to produce 100,000 bottles of wine a year or whatever it used to be. And now, you know, children are having to grow up and get um, economic security by moving into the big cities. And so these ancient places are dwindling and dying. There's a lot of ghost towns that I discovered in Italy, beautiful places. And it's so very ironic to go to some of these villages and see the palace of the medieval lord or duke. And it's in the worst shape of any of the buildings because nobody can maintain it to historical preservation standards. If we could manage to make things work in our own town, you know, what is your business? Start your own business in your small town. Provide that service locally instead of look for a job in that line of work in the big city. That's a lot easier said than done. That's a very challenging route, but I'd like to see more of that. And I think that could be a key to solving, you know, our problems in the long run. You know, instead of having a brain drain from the countryside and moving to the big city, that if more people stayed locally, returned to their home and introduced those services, I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing now, and it's not easy, but I think it's helpful overall, giving back and, and showing this is the community that raised me, and this is what I've learned in the big city, and I'm reintroducing that back to my community and hopefully showing them that there's different ways to build, and hopefully we can do that the world around. How do you see a role in that? I'm employing masons, carpenters, concrete fabricators, all local, and they're seeing what it's like to build a sustainable building, which is something they've never done before. So there's special thinking that goes into working on your structure. Absolutely. It's a custom building. The, the difficulty is it's commercial grade construction on a single family residential unit. So single family residential experience, it's not going to help you on this project. And commercial crews don't have time for a small project like mine. So it's hard to get the right level of expertise I've gone to a lot of retirees who've worked on commercial crews and have that experience, but are starting their own business late in life and need a project like mine and can deliver. I think a lot of people are intimidated by sustainable building, just like they're intimidated by the electric car. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a we new have, experience. It's a new experience. We have an electric car. There are neighbors who've asked me, oh my God, did you have to convert your whole garage? Yeah, yeah. 
And it's like, no, you just plug it in. But there's this myth, this urban myth that converting to something that's more sustainable is going to be just like really super hard for a long time. Yeah, yeah. But once we get over that hurdle, buildings like yours can exist for miles and miles. Yeah. Yeah, well, what you can do is it's all relative. If I clients open up and shift their house, reproportion it, put more glass on the south side, here we go. We're making the situation better. That's progress. The difficult thing is they usually come to me with a vision in their mind, you know? And that goes back to what you are saying before about how people view themselves. Exactly. How do we grow in that difference and still have it be sustainable? Everybody's an individual. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own way of doing things. And, you know, I want to bring that uniqueness out in the individual, you know, because it's not just about, like I said, building a sustainable building, but it's building a sustainable building for someone specific and getting to know that person and cultivate the potential for their creative vision in response to the environment, you know, specific response to the environment. Uh, I love that. So in your process, how do you walk through that piece of it? Yeah. It's hard because you don't have a lot of time to get to know a new client, to make friends with them, connect with them. I have to do it quickly because there's value in the research that I do. When I design, I tend to look at available materials and labor expertise and the environment. So I have to balance all those factors. It's a huge balancing act. And I like to have all my tools and my factors on the table to analyze at one time. And Sometimes if a client's not sure or, you know, maybe I'm influencing them in a way, they start to deviate from what they said initially and then I have to respond to that and incorporate it. And eventually and all this deviation will start dissipating and we come to a final consensus. A lot of times, you know, it's not what they expected. It's not what I expected. I mean, that's one thing that's really huge that I'm, I'm learning now. It's like I want to get people to understand it's not going to be like either of us expect in the end. That's really what needs to be said and it needs to be allowed for. Because I think most of the pain and frustration from the process comes from having to let go. And life in general. Yeah, and life in general, (laughs) you know. Oh, and I should share with our listeners, though, that you've worked on our former house. Yes, your apartment in Brooklyn. Yes, it was like 10 years ago or something like that. How time flies. It, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I'm old and gray. No, no, no. I'm not. Um, no, but I thought that you were really straightforward in the potential of the space because you came back with three or four options ranging from very conservative to really like avant-garde. Yeah. And there was a spectrum to choose from. And I thought that was a really graceful way of gauging our comfort level with how far we were going to push it. And to your point, we didn't even end up exactly in one spot. Right. I think it ended up being a blend of like two of the options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we discussed it and I think we wound up somewhere in between. Yeah, it's a dance. Yeah, you kind of have to have a little bit of faith and try new things out. And you guys were willing to do that. It's just something that I don't come across very often. I mean, you guys have an art education, and so you know, you're know uh, you in tune with the creative process. Let's talk about creative literacy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because that's a big thing for you. I want you to be able to share it with our listeners. Tell us your philosophy on how creative literacy could be attained versus the reality. 
Yeah, so creative literacy is something that is a real problem. It's not prioritized in our common educational system. I went to a public high school in Southern Maryland and priority was always given to math and science and it failed to recognize the union of arts and sciences, which is something I greatly believe in. I mean, science is based on facts, but unless you have that creative spark of questioning, you know, I can vent without Jules Verne thinking about the atomic submarine in the 19th century, would it ever have come about? I mean, it's obvious to me that even artists need to know the science behind what it is they're creating, the materials they're using, the methods, even the thread of logic that can be found in storytelling, you know, the mathematical concepts in music. Arts and sciences are inherently linked and they inherently inform each other. And we do not pay enough credit to that. Even educators aren't enough aware about that. I enrolled in art classes and I saw that priority was given to those who could copy a photograph accurately, which is no different than a copy machine. I mean, it takes a lot of skill and hand-eye coordination, but a lot of people are lost in thinking that handcraft is the limit of art. They don't realize that there's a, an emotional aspect. I think we're not enough in tune with our emotions and giving credit to that aspect of our education, our emotional education. And uh, I mean, if it wasn't for the music department and maybe the, you know, the theater club at school, there would have been no creative presence in my education. I fortunately was raised by two artists, so I had my own education aside from what the local public school was offering. I also feel that there should be more, you know, way of educating people either in terms of the psychological aspect of self-awareness and emotional education, you know, psych ed along with phys ed. It's not just about the body and math and science, but about the soul as well. And it needn't be a religious thing. You know, we can separate church and state and still talk about the scientific aspects and the basic presence of, you know, how music affects the soul. You know, when, when music is so moving. Or walking into a space can be so moving. Precisely. I wish I had more experience in advocacy. I really don't feel like I have a way of connecting directly through my practice as an architect. I think I have more leverage to promote the creative aspect of my profession by working with my father, Bruce Thiel, who's a lifelong printmaker and serigrapher, very much involved in the museum community in Washington, D.C. But, you know, by, by attracting creative people, people who are interested in fine art specifically, I hope to meet more crossovers. Because I think the problem with architecture, it kind of cloaks itself as a human necessity. You know, you need shelter, you need to stay warm in the winter. And so people are thinking from that perspective and not realizing, hey, if you're going to put some walls on a roof together, you know, let's do it in a way that allows us to be you know, emotionally enlightened. That's key. Allowing something that's practical to also fulfill the ecological responsibility that we have, fulfill who we are as human beings at the individual level, construct community. Architecture lives at the crux of all that. Absolutely. I mean, it really defines the space and, and it defines our life. I mean, the thing that gives me the most pride is thinking, you know, if I'm designing a home, you know, maybe it's for these clients, but you know, maybe they'll sell it someday and, and a new family will come in and they will raise their children and their children will take their first steps in this house. You know, what is it like for a child to grow up in an environment? Is it going to inspire them? Is it going to, you know, discourage and depress them? That's something that an architect has direct influence over. 
Do you think about that? As absolutely. You absolutely positively. So not only do you take into account the people who are in front of you, but the generations that will... Well, that's what I'm talking about in terms of ancient Rome. I mean, those buildings are still used today in one way or another, maybe not as they were intended by designers. And that's one thing I try to design with my house on the Potomac in Southern Maryland is trying to think about how this building can be added to. I built masonry exterior walls with wood interior partitions so they could be adjustable space. And I also like to think in terms of modular design. You know, if you design everything on a four-foot grid, you know, sheet of plywood adapts more easily and you can shift things in and out, add to spaces. Eventually, I'd love to design exoskeletal space frames, start inserting prefabricated units within that. There's a lot of things you can do if you plan for change and plan for adaptation. It makes it a lot easier down the road. It's the antithesis of disposable architecture. Right, absolutely. And you market yourself as an ecologically conscious Oh, architect. absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I really don't like that certain organizations come and they claim green design for themselves. That's not like a new thing. Before fossil fuels, we had to do that. Design spaces that worked with thermodynamics, that brought streams and brooks through the basement in order to cool the Victorian house. I've heard so many stories about discovering these things that were boarded up and patched up and filled in. Uh, that were essential parts of old houses. But now that we've got fossil fuels, cheap and easy and powerful, you know, we can just put a machine in there and let the machine think for us. It's a, it's a bad direction. Architects have been designing sustainably for thousands of years. Uh, green architecture is kind of a marketing scheme, and it's being used that way by organizations like LEED Design. You don't need a LEED certification to be a good architectural designer and consider sustainable options. How can people who live in an apartment or may not build a house participate and promote green living, in your opinion? You can put more house plants in your building to freshen the air. You can even you know, paint a wall black or install a light shelf in your window that can help reflect light deeper into your space. And there's amazing things you can do. Just watch how the light moves in your apartment throughout the year and take advantage of that light during the winter months and block it out in the summer months, keep things nice and shaded. That's cool. I never thought about painting a wall darker. Yeah, for example, I mean, it just is to absorb more light and not reflect it away. That's going to help absorb heat. And you, of course, you want to make sure this is winter exposure where you're painting black. You know, when you think of windows, windows have three functions, view, solar radiation, and uh, ventilation. So, you know, it's not just a, a decorative element. It's very important. <laughs> it's not just for a fire escape? <laughs> yeah, fire escape too. Uh, yeah, there are times when it has a fourth function. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't like to think about those. Uh, let, let the architect handle that. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you You're for welcome. coming on. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Juana. Thank you so much for listening. Blissfully Aware is produced by The Daring, a creative consultancy and transformation partner to purposeful entrepreneurs and organizations. Our theme music is by Ben Tyree. And you can get in touch by emailing info at thedaring.co. I'd love your feedback, your topic ideas, your guest ideas. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review so that other people in our cohort might find it. And I'll see you back here in two weeks. Have a great day, everybody.